In this episode of Inspiration is Everywhere, Jane and I are continuing the discussion about aspects of inspiration found in nature and human nature by having a conversation with river guide and mental health professional in training, Laura Fallon. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Inspiration is Everywhere, a field guide for the storytellers of the world. This is a deconstruction arts podcast that examines the world around us and looks at how day-to-day inspirations help storytellers create. I'm co-artistic director and explorer of thought, Jane Rose. And I'm Tavi Stutz, the other artistic director of deconstruction arts and a lover of love. On this episode of Inspiration is Everywhere, we are going to be talking with river guide, yoga teacher, and soon-to-be mental health counselor, Laura Fallon. For the past 20 summers, Laura Fallon took to the river. She is an expert at piloting the Colorado River as it majestically winds and twists and turns its way through the Grand Canyon. After a trip, her passengers leave there with a newfound respect for the Grand Canyon and thanking her for providing them with the experience of a lifetime. Her mastery does not stop there. She is also a certified yoga instructor. She's been through many training programs and has learned how to overcome her own injuries, as well as assisting others to overcome their own. She always sees the best in people and will inevitably coax it out of them. In case it's not clear, Laura has a giant heart, and in her quest to assist and facilitate healing, she is becoming a mental health counselor. I'm honored to say that Laura has been a friend of mine for nearly two decades, and she continually inspires me and always reminds me to have adventures and to keep learning. Hi, Laura. Welcome to Inspiration is Everywhere. Well, hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today. In our previous conversations, we've been discussing nature and human nature, which is right up your alley. And we are really interested in hearing your thoughts. In this pod of episodes, we did a spotlight episode on Yvonne Chouinard, who started Patagonia, and we talked about his love of nature and his desire to be as conscious about our impact as possible. So digging in with the first question, when did you first fall in love with nature? You know, I think it's in my bones. I think it's just part of my DNA. I, um, my earliest memories really relate to nature. I was in England for the first seven years of my life. And Mm. the few memories I have of that time involved the ocean, involved walks and big fields and playing, you know, outside. I think nature and being connected to nature has literally been a part of me since I was, before I was probably born. It just is part of, it's just part of me. It always has been. It always will be. So how did you get from there? I feel like I know a lot of these answers, but (laughs) I'm asking the questions anyway. And I'll probably ask you to just like share other stories. Um, But how did you get from there to being a river guide? Uh, You know, it was a long winding road. It wasn't a straight line for me in any sort of way. And now being a guide for so long, I, I have to look back and be like, what brought me to here? How, what are the things that I've done in my past that somehow led me in this direction? Because I do feel like I was led in that direction. It wasn't something that I was like, I want to be a river guide. Like that definitely was not my path. Um, (laughs) So, you know, what, what were those kind of things that either skills I learned very young or 
experiences I had throughout my life that led me to want to be a river guide or to be successful at being a river guide. And the two that are kind of coming to my mind first and foremost are um, being a child in the the beaches of Maine in the freezing cold water of the ocean and loving it was a training ground that I had no idea was a training ground to be incredibly uh, respectful, but also really comfortable in water, in powerful, cold water. (laughs) And the harsh environment too of the Grand Canyon, I think is also something that I've, you know, whether it's the Bikram yoga room or it's, Growing up in the Northeast that has these intense hurricane, you know, and big storms or big um, snowfall and, and really cold temperatures and really hot, humid, you know, just the extremes of the different parts of my life in terms of temperature, in terms of environment, I think trained me to feel pretty darn comfortable in the Grand Canyon, which is a very kind of stark um, in many, I mean, it's beautiful, but it is, it's intense. It's hot. It's the water is freezing. And yet the air temperature is really hot. There's total exposure and there's no way to really hide <laughs> from nature, right? You can't hide from nature in Grand Canyon. You are immersed in it in this incredible way. Um, so I think there's all those pieces of environment that I've experienced that have kind of led me to be skillful at being in the Grand Canyon. But the other really big element that I've realized has always been important to me, has been this kind of very deep through line in my life, is my intense desire to understand people and want to meet people from all different places and with different backgrounds and different ways of looking at the world and help them navigate something that might be really out of their comfort zone or maybe is in their comfort zone, but for a lot of people, it's out of their comfort zone. And I really enjoy that. And that's probably why I'm becoming a mental health counselor. So, you know, um, I think it, it, it makes a lot more sense to me now looking back than when I started and was like, what am I doing? Like, does this make sense? You know, I just trusted, I trusted that it did. And now I understand a little bit more why. That's really cool. And it also speaks to how perfect you are for this particular theme of our <laughs> podcast. Now, I know that TV probably knows this because I think he's gone on trips with you, but I can say for myself, I do not. And perhaps some of our listeners would also need to uh, know a little bit more about what exactly a river guide does. Mm. Well, it's not an easy question to answer because it really depends on the guide. Mm-hmm. And it depends on the trip and it depends on the position they're in on that trip. So to say overall, I guess river guides provide some structure and safety in an environment. Um, in this particular case, I pr- primarily have guided in the Grand Canyon, but I've also guided thankfully. And, and um, I feel really a lot of gratitude that I've been able to guide in a few other places like Idaho and in Alaska, but primarily my guiding has been in Grand Canyon. And I think that's what we do is that no matter where you're guiding as a river guide, you're providing a structure, you're providing safety, you're providing guidance as to how to navigate all the pieces of a river trip, whether it's a day trip or it's a multi-day trip, whether it's in Grand Canyon or it's in Alaska. But Every trip, we're all placed in, in a crew 
of people and we all have different roles. And at Azra, the company that I've primarily worked with in Grand Canyon, we switch up those roles. Sometimes I'm what's called the trip leader. It's, you know, sometimes we call ourselves the trip suggester because <laughs> it's, you know, if you're really working with a crew and you really feel confident in everyone's abilities, you do feel a little bit more like it's a crew trip, not a trip leader trip. But when things go in a direction where decisions need to be made, whether that's because of a safety event or a medical event, um, the trip leader needs to make those decisions, whether it's something that dramatic, you know, something intense, or it's literally just like, where should we have lunch? Someone has to make the decision. <laughs> we have to actually decide where we're going to camp because those things aren't predetermined in Grand Canyon. You camp and you stop and you lunch wherever makes sense for you in that moment with that day, with the people that are around you, with the weather that you've got. And that's determined primarily by the trip leader. But some other trips, I do other roles. You know, sometimes I'm not the trip leader and whether that's a motor trip or an oar trip would determine kind of what other pieces I bring into the trip. But, but I also think all guides um, give information. You know, they give not just information about this is where your bags are, or this is what you, you get a Paco pad, or this is how you set up a tent. But they also give information about like, hey, this is what this wall is. This is what this geology is. This is this particular ra rapid coming up is blah, blah, blah. So we're there to give information, you know, and depending on the people, you give a lot of information or you give very little. Sometimes they want to know more about you than they do about the canyon. And part of that is reading the, reading the group you're with and reading the people you're with and trying to figure out what information am I going to pass on to them? What stories, what facts and information do they need? I love that you just brought that up because that naturally segues into a memory that I wanted to talk about, which is when we're going down the, the, the river through the Grand Canyon, there's a point where Laura turned off the motor the, the trips that I've been on so far have been motorboat trips, which she's piloting the motor. And there's like 20 people on the raft. I don't know. Each boat has 14, 12 to 14 passengers and two or three crew. Nice. Yeah. And then, and Laura just turns off the motor, pulls it out of the water and comes up front with everybody else and just starts talking and telling a story as we're all just sort of floating down the river. And it's so beautiful to be in the power of nature and just absorb it and not have to hear the, mm, of the, mo the hum of the motor and to just sort of embrace where the river is going to take you. Mm -hmm. And in that time, Laura's telling a story, usually somehow uh, connected to the canyon. And, um, and I'm wondering if you would share a story with us today of one that you would tell your passengers as you're floating. And it doesn't have to be like the top. I know some of them are very personal and beautiful and kept sort of secret to the canyon. But if mm -hmm. there's one that you can share that is, would inspire people to be like, oh, wow, the Grand Canyon. I want to go down there. <laughs> I haven't thought of that before. Well, if you're thinking about going in the Grand Canyon, listeners, please go because it's amazing. And it's really hard to describe it, to be really honest. Um, so even if someone you know has gone and they show you pictures, there is absolutely no way to really, truly 
experience and understand the Grand Canyon unless you're in it, unless you do it. And it's different than standing on the rim um, has been my experience is that I've stood on the rim and I love the rim. It's beautiful. Both rims actually, but it is very different being on the river. So let's see. God, there's so many stories. I mean, literally I joke about it all the time and say, you know, basically every rapid has a story. Most of them are named because of something. It could be as simple as saying, Hey, this next rapid is Doris rapid. And Doris was the, the wife of Norm Nevels. And it turns out that she fell out in this rapid. But actually what we learned last year at this guide training seminar, this kind of place that we go um, as guides before the uh, season begins, we learned that actually Doris did not fall out in this rapid. It turns out a historian figured out that actually she fell out in the next rapid, but we're still going to call this Doris because we've called it Doris literally for 20 years. So this is Doris rapid. Hold on. You know, <laughs> that that's, you know, a typical pre-rapid story kind of thing, you know, that they all have some sort of, why is it called this? Um, you know, why is this canyon called this? Why is this rapid called this? Why is this feature called this? Oh, this is Vasey's Paradise. Vasey's Paradise is named because John Wesley Powell came down here. He's one of the first river explorers and his botanist friend wasn't with him, but he wanted to honor him with this beautiful feature, which is this incredible waterfall that comes out of the Redwall limestone. And it's just the whole area is filled with foliage at all times of the year because it's just fed by this spring water constantly and during the spring it has these incredible blooming of flowers and literally like hundreds of different plants are in that one area so you know it's named for Vasey for this botanist friend of of John Wesley Powell's because it is just full of plants full of life and uh there's poison ivy there so that's why we don't visit <laughs> you know like these are the things that we say down there um, on a pretty constant. I mean, I have long stories that sometimes I'll tell, you know, I'll go for it and either read something or talk about something that is important to me or, you know, experiences I had, whether it was an interesting rapid uh, run at one point in my life or that I was part of, or, you know, there, there's a story that I often tell at Fishtail um, rapid that I won't tell because it's it's kind of long, but it it talks about this woman, this what passenger I had once, and her name's Molly Ivins, and I kind of feel like these rays that are coming behind me actually almost make me feel like she's here. Anyway, we're talking about Molly Ivins, and this story basically just talks about how she inspired me through this experience we had together in Grand Canyon with this particular rapid and this moment that allowed her to recognize how important support is and people are and that in this moment where she was vulnerable because she basically got thrown because we got hit by this huge wave in this particular rapid she had all these people to support her and grab her and you know take care of her and make sure she was okay and that was for her some a symbol to the end of her life of why she wants she wanted to live to the, the fullest and surrounding herself by these incredible communities that she surrounded herself with allowed her to do that even to the very end of her life. So, you know, I like to tell stories like that too, because people inspire me and the Canyon affects people and that inspires me, you know? Wait, can we talk just for the people and that are listening, away. the rays went away. So the rays came as soon as you started telling that story and Not then kidding. they went away. Yeah. And camera didn't move at all. No, 
I didn't move at all. Camera didn't move at all. Molly Ivins. Yep. I think about her every single time I go down there and every time I run that rapid. And I tell the story, I would say two thirds of the time because it's something that has impacted me so much, but you know, one third of the time I'm, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. It, you know, it's not the right timing. It's not the right people. It's not the right mood. It's whatever it is. But yeah, some stories beg to be told. Um, and, and you sort of are beautifully setting up each question. Um, <laughs> next wanted to hear some of your thoughts on the kind of things that you've noticed people having to navigate in regards to their own human nature that they're then confronted with when they're immersed in nature, especially something as, you know, massive as the Grand Canyon that has all of these different challenges that you're presented with. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's multi-tiered. The first tier I feel like I see is the one that is closest to where I am in my life, but also, as I said, the through line of my life, which is people, just how do people interact with people, whether it's who they came with, it's seeing, you know, parent-child relationships, it's seeing partnership relationships, it's seeing all friendships, all the things. Um, So there's that layer of just like watching people navigate this challenging place while in these relationships. And then of course, some of them are relationships that are new, you know, people they don't know, experiencing and trusting people they don't know, like me as a river guide, you know, having to put their their faith in me uh, and the rest of the crew and also relinquish so much control. I mean, we control when they eat, we control what they eat, control where they poop. Yep, we do. Yep, we set up a groover, we set up the, you know, the place where they go to the bathroom for them. <laughs> they can't just decide where they want to go to the bathroom. We decide for them. So there's that. There's that layer of just like watching people interact in this foreign environment. Just simply their inter- their interactions with each other. And then because of the nature, as you had mentioned, of Grand Canyon and its it's uh, massiveness, um, it's intensity, you know, whether you're talking about running a rapid that's really big or going on a hike that requires people to deal with or confront maybe height issues because there's sheer drops down to nowhere um, or cactus or uh, whatever, water, you know, there's those things that people are navigating as well as I, something that's coming to my mind is on my last trip, I was watching um, and we were kind of myself and another guide were helping people at the back of this place called National Canyon try to navigate stemming, which is, you know, for most people, a very foreign thing. They're like, what is stemming? I don't even know what that is. And basically stemming, for those that don't know what it is, probably has lots of different meanings. But the way I, I'm using the term is that your body, you've got one body part on one wall and then you've got another body part on another wall and you're kind of holding yourself. Yeah. Maybe it's arms and legs. Maybe it's butt on one side, feet on the other. Maybe it's hands on one side, feet on the other, but you're navigating this rock in this way of stemming and at the back of national in order to kind of get up to the next tier beyond this little pool that people can play in. People were wanting to push themselves, you know, to, to try this thing that was, not in their comfort zone and certainly nothing 
that they had ever tried, at least many of them, many of them just scampered right up and it was no big deal, but just kind of navigating with them. How do we help them navigate this, navigate their feelings about what they're doing and their anxiety, navigate them trusting us and knowing that we do know what we're talking about and we're not putting them in a place of, um, of being at risk of hurting themselves. You know, we're going to give them all the information they need so that if, if you do fall, this is what you need to do. Or, you know, this is, this is the kind of point where you'd stop at. If you're not sure, if you're not feeling comfortable, you can come back down or whatever it is. And then, um, so I was kind of navigating this one particular feature and I was watching also another guide working with this one woman that is very, was very adept is definitely a climber of some sort, but pushing her to her next level. Like, even her, someone who's comfortable with that kind of stuff and stemming wasn't a big deal for her. Like, how do we help her in- encourage her to push that limit and say, you got this. We know you've got this. And hit, watching him kind of walk her through it, talk her through it. And that's just, that's part of the river trips. That's, that's what we do is help people when they are impacted by or confronted with how nature makes them feel uncomfortable. It could also be, you know, there's a rainstorm and some people start freaking out and you're like, okay, do you want to put up a tent or let's just run around and dance and make them realize it's not that big of a deal and help them navigate in that way. You know, and what are the different ways we can help people navigate nature kind of impacting us without us really being able to control it, which I love. I love that we're not in an environment that we can be like, I don't want the rain. I don't want the wind. Like, well, it's here. <laughs> Got to deal with it. <laughs> I love that. You you just said maybe one something that just made me realize when people are thanking you at the end, like, oh, thank you. That was such a great trip. We had such a great time. What it feels like they're really thanking you for is connecting them with nature in a way that they've never experienced it. And something that I think is really important to me. And I feel like I want to point out to, to the, to the listeners is that I think our job as guides is to not get in the way of allowing them to fully experience nature. My job is not to talk their ear off or get in the space so that they're not able to really be. It is about encouraging them to be inquisitive, encouraging them to, wonder about the geology, posing a few questions, but not just talking about geology for three hours, saying, what do you guys think about this? Why do you think this looks like this? That it's, it's about an interactive thing between them and nature, not me. I'm just kind of helping usher them to maybe some things that maybe interest them, the aspects of nature that might interest them, that feel safe to them, that feel accessible to them. Uh, and helping them obviously, hopefully expand what they think is accessible to them and what they think they can deal with, but is not to get in the way. The Grand Canyon does a fantastic job of doing uh, this thing that we all hear every single trip. You know, the Grand Canyon gives you perspective. It allows you to be present. It forces you to be present. And we as guides could get in the way of that, or we can help facilitate that from happening. And I think for me, especially now, after 20 years of being down there, that is really important to me and really important 
in how I feel like I try to mentor or talk to upcoming guides. This is not about showing how much information you know. This is about creating curiosity so that they can interact with this place. Who cares how many layers of Grand Canyon you know? And it's only important if it's helping them connect to it. I will also say it's really cool to be at Lee's Ferry where you launch your trips from, or many of your trips are launched from. All of the trips, actually. All, all of the trips. All Grand Canyon trips must launch from Lee's Ferry. Wow. Yeah. All right. Cool. What's super cool to see is the guides stay there the night before the trip launches and all of the passengers come up on a bus and they're let out of the bus. And immediately you see just the, the joy, the adventurous spirit of all of these people, just super excited to embark on this adventure, if you will. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because just a moment ago, you talked about how you control when and where they eat and all of this sort of stuff, but the passengers freely give that up. It's not a, it, it, I've never seen it as some sort of like combative thing. It's very much like as a guide, you're there to facilitate a journey and they're super excited to have you facilitate it. Most of them are. I mean, I think some, as, as I was saying kind of at the beginning, I, I understand why there might be some resistance to losing control over things you're really used to having control over, especially as adults, you mm -hmm. know? So I do get that anxiety that we do see sometimes or that, that feeling that can get in the way. And that's again, like another layer of what we need to address because it's there. Like we can pretend it doesn't exist, but the, the reality is these are mostly adults that are used to controlling their own lives. And when they go to the bathroom and where and um, what they eat and when, and we are taking that away from them and to not acknowledge that and to not be compassionate about how that might impact them to me is, would not be fair and would not be uh, something that I feel really comfortable with doing because they are adults and even the kids, you know, even the kids, I feel like I want to say, I'm sorry. Like, you know, if you want snacks, this is where you can get them. And if you need more, let me know because I don't want you to feel like I'm controlling when you eat, but I'm kind of controlling when you eat. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so what I'm gathering, there are no unguided trips of the Grand Canyon. There are, um, you can do a private trip. Okay. So really there's two ways to go down Grand Canyon uh, on the river. One is through co a commercial outfitter, which is what Azra, uh, Arizona Raft Adventures, the company I work for, that is what they are. And there are quite a few, there's like a dozen commercial outfitters. And then you, the other option is to, um, to go online and apply for a private permit. And you basically choose five dates and there's a lottery each day has a lottery basically based on how many people um, put in for those particular days, that particular year, and someone is chosen and they get um, the option of then doing a trip on that day, launching on that day in Grand Canyon. And they actually are not allowed to have a guide. Um, it is required that it is a share the expense trip and that um, they cannot hire someone to guide them down Grand Canyon. So it really is just a group of people getting together 
they do have some requirements in terms of making sure that there's someone that has the boating knowledge that could get people through it safely or has been in Grand Canyon and understands, you know, what Deer Creek is and where the, the Nankawee granaries are and, you know, what you can and cannot do at ARC sites, as well as, you know, they give them a lot of information and paper that um, tells them a lot of that stuff. But, but yeah, there's definitely two ways to go down Grand Canyon. You can go down privately or you can go down with a commercial outfitter. You talked a little bit at the beginning about your, you know, sort of your love of people and, and getting to know them and, and then sort of that, how that's been a part of your journey. Um, with that in mind, can you talk a little bit more about what interested you in psychology and how you decided to pursue this profession as a mental health counselor? Um, I think I've always been fascinated by people. So when I was in going into college and I already knew that I was going to go to New York City and work in the theater professionally, I decided rather than getting a theater degree, I wanted a psychology degree because I felt like understanding people would help me as an actor, but would also help me as a person. And to me, that was really important because I didn't want to just be an actor that was acting all the time. I wanted to be an actor that understood human nature, understood why people do the things that they do. And so that was kind of the beginning of professionally thinking about how psychology and understanding people could be useful. And then when I left there, I definitely thought about getting an MSW, getting a master of social work, because back then that's kind of what the degree would be if you wanted to become a counselor. But I you know, went on to do the, the career that I kind of always had planned I would do, which is go to New York City and work there in the theater for 12 years professionally. But I think there's always been that part of me that whatever profession I've been in, in the theater, as well as um, in yoga, you know, and teaching people in yoga and seeing them in these really uncomfortable, especially in Bikram, you know, in the hot room and seeing them deal with that environment, as well as all the ridiculous positions we were trying to put them in, you know, seeing people in that kind of extreme environment and helping them navigate that has always felt kind of interesting to me. My favorite movie is Silence of the Lambs, which a lot of people think is really weird, but it totally makes sense because it's about understanding extreme people. Like, why does that person think that way? I want to understand people that do things that I couldn't even imagine doing or thinking. I want to understand where they're coming from. I want to understand what, what creates those thoughts. I want to understand what creates those activities or those actions and so when you think about all of that, when I started to think, what is my next career going to be? And where is this going to lead me? And I was in yoga private sessions and people were asking me to kind of go beyond just to talk about what poses we could do. They were talking about their lives and they were talking about how to navigate their lives and the stresses of their lives. And I realized I don't, I don't know enough about people and psychology and mental health and mental illness as I would like to in order to help people really navigate these things more skillfully. And that's kind of what led me to now, you know, being in this um, master's program for mental health counseling. So in some really bizarre ways, it doesn't actually feel like a huge departure from what I've done. It just feels like an extension or a deepening. I can definitely identify with the the connective tissue of things that sort of 
merge into different pathways and you look back and you're like, well, of course it makes sense. Yeah. Like, you know, when you actually see the through line, yeah, of course. Yeah. What is, what is the common thing? And, and actually funny enough, the common thing, the common themes in my life is human nature and nature. Right. I mean, those are the two common themes that have always been in my life. Even when I lived in New York City, I was always, you know, running and biking and seeking out ways that I could get into nature or being in Central Park or coming back here and guiding. Or, you know, I was always connecting, even in a place like New York City, which people don't think of as being natural or having, you know, natural elements. But to me, just even simply when it started raining, not running into a building is having an experience with nature. You don't have to be in Grand Canyon to have an experience with nature. You just have to be open to having an experience with nature. <laughs> and a lot of people aren't, or they're afraid of it, or they don't know how to navigate that super well. And they don't necessarily understand the impacts that being connected to nature in whatever way they can, in whatever environment they're in, can have on their lives. I mean, really, I think nature can be so profoundly important uh, as a tool, and we just don't use it because, you know, people are like, oh, I live in a city. It's like, well, that's not a reason not to connect to nature. There's still nature there. <laughs> there's still trees. There's still rocks. There's still, you know, all the things. There's, there's wind, there's rain, there's sun. <laughs> Those things still exist, even though there's lots of buildings around you, you know, and, and how do we, how do we do that skillfully? There's another through line, I think, in all of your, your professional paths, or at least thus far, to a certain extent, is the performative nature of it, mm. right? So it reminds me of a time I'm going to share this story because I think it's a beautiful story that sort of tells people a little bit more about Laura, which is when being in the canyon, there's a certain spot where everyone would get off and go for a little hike. And there was another trip leader who plays guitar and he brought his guitar there and Laura sang a song as he was strumming away on the guitar. And you could feel like it just like, gelled this group together in such a beautiful way and to hear her voice echoing through the canyons was such a lovely and uh impactful moment i think for people black tail canyon mm. that's where we were carlin was the the guitarist and you know it's interesting performance yes but not performance and i even as an actor i was always really adamant that i didn't really want to be performing and I don't, as a guide, want to be performing. And as a yoga instructor, I don't want to be performing. I want to be. I want to be present. I want to model. I want to interact with people in a really authentic way. And, and to me, in some ways, and this isn't a, a criticism of the word performance, but is a kind of a clarification for me that I don't, I don't want to feel like, even though I know there's kind of this elevated sense of telling a story or elevated sense of giving a safety talk or elevated sense of being in front of people while they're trying to navigate a yoga pose that I'm not explaining well, or I am explaining well, you know, that there's a heightenedness to it 
but I want there to be an authenticity. I don't want to feel like I'm performing or pretending I'm something that I'm not. And I felt that way even as an actor. I really felt like I don't want to play roles where I'm playing an act, you know, playing a role. I want to understand that person. I want to be that person for that period of time. And that's what I loved about acting. You know, I loved getting into the skin of someone and really sensing why they feel the way they do and why they choose to do the things that they do from a really authentic place. That's why I was a method actor. That's why I did Stanislavski. Yeah. I mean, what it sounds like you're describing, or at least how I identify it is it, it, it feels like you're concentrating on the truth of the elements and then being able to communicate that. And that, I don't know, for me, that tends to be the places where I find the most genuine as you're describing, like, what we would call performance, you know, like quote performance of a play or a movie or that kind of thing. But there's, when there's a truthfulness in that, it's something that we can connect to. And it sounds like you're also finding that truthfulness in yoga, in, in teaching yoga in guiding. And that what also, what's interesting is that there are definitely places that you could find where this doesn't apply, like you know, movies or that kind of stuff, like performing in a, in a, in a film, but there's something about feeling the energy of who you're working with mm-hmm. and, and being able to, cause I, like, I love that you mentioned that you don't always tell certain stories. Yeah. Cause it, cause it's not a script. You're not just like, okay, here's, we've gotten around this bend and now I got to go to page 23 of my script to, <laughs> to read to you. Is about finding and sculpting this experience. Mm-hmm. And that's just really beautiful to hear about. And hopefully what I'll do as a mental health worker, you know, as, as someone in counseling, I think that's the most important thing to me is that I am authentic, that I am present, that I am real, that I'm not pretending that I've tr- you know, I believe something about a person or that I see the best in them. I I want to let them know that is how I feel and that is who I am. And that's partly why I think this is such a good match for me, much like being in nature is such a good match for me. It just feels easy. It doesn't feel like I'm trying to put on a hat or a jacket that doesn't really fit. It fits me, you know, being in nature feels really natural, natural. Being in nature feels natural. That makes sense. (laughs) What was your, or do you have one? I think that this would probably be like, you know, oh God, how can I choose? Um, But do you have one most memorable or inspirational experience with nature that you could share with us? You know, as, as you're saying that, I was like, the thing that comes to my mind is the moment where I had to surrender to nature and the fear that could have completely overwhelmed me when I experienced a rock fall in, uh, in Alaska, when I was on a trip in Alaska on the, um, on the Alsec river, I was with another guide and I I don't know how much you want to know about that experience, but that is the experience that comes to my mind is, is being that close to knowing that nature could take my life or a limb or uh, damage me severely in this moment and it didn't and it wasn't because I did anything right it's because I did everything wrong and it still somehow worked out okay and thankfully it also worked out okay for the other guide but recognizing that no matter how connected I feel to nature 
that it is still always in charge and it can take my life and it can damage me and it can change my life forever at any moment. And I just am okay with that. I'm not going to stop putting myself in those situations. I'm just going to continue remembering that that is true. When I'm on the river, I always acknowledge and I will always, I'll even say it out loud constantly during the trip in different situations that make sense. You know, the river is in charge. I, I truly believe that I, I'm not in charge. And in Alaska, in this moment, nature was in charge and nature decided something. And in that moment, it decided not to take my life. And I was really thankful for it. Um, but I'm not going to stop being in nature because it has that power. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. So hearing then these stories of how powerful and strong nature is, how do you think human nature impacts nature? I guess what comes to my mind is human nature impacts nature by pretending it can control it. Mm. To me, humans and those that believe they have the right or the ability to control nature, that's where that intersection happens to me that feels difficult, feels confusing to me because I don't feel that way. And I've had so many experiences that have told me that is not true. I cannot conquer this river. I cannot conquer nature. I'm not even going to try. And when people try, I think, why? What, what, what is your point in trying to control something that is not meant to be controlled? It is something to be celebrated. It is, it is something to help us as a tool to help us understand ourselves and how small we are and yet how significant we are. And I think when people miss that and try to control it, I think, why? It is such a beautiful, useful, helpful thing that in our lives that we can, we can either deny or we can embrace. And when people deny it, I just think, why? There's so much we can learn from nature. Why do you pretend that you're in command of it? You're, you're not. I mean, I can say that unequivocally. I'm not. No one is. Nature is in control. And we can embrace it or we can pretend that we have some control over it. Mm. I choose to embrace it. I think it's great. Something else that's great is this last question, unless Jane has something she wants to add in. And it's a wonderful way that I like to, or it's a wonderful way that we like to wrap up these I actually don't know if Jane likes it, but I <laughs> <laughs> I've already I've already decided that I'm going to talk about it in our wrap ups of how I actually really don't like it. <laughs> and um, so I, the the question is, will you share an embarrassing story with us? <laughs> will I share an embarrassing story? I don't know. I thought that was pretty embarrassing. No. <laughs> I was stupid enough to think I could go to a glacial pool in an area where there's rock fall. But that was pretty embarrassing as a guide. Sort of stupid. Uh, you mean more embarrassing than that? Uh, <laughs> I think of that as a majestic story <laughs> and a learning experience. But isn't everything and every embarrassing story, oh, aren't they really sure. just, you know, 
ways to like learn something <laughs> you go oh yeah that was kind of interesting that I thought that was true and that wasn't true or whatever <laughs> um, I don't know if I have an embarrassing story on hand besides I mean I, there's so many things I've done in my life that are embarrassing and sort of silly and ridiculous but I choose not to really focus on them too much in my life because I know I have learned things from them I don't spend a lot of my energy trying to make myself uh, the butt of jokes uh, or to, you know, I mean, I'm not a natural comedian that doesn't tell like, oh, there's this, ex you know, this experience I had that was really embarrassing. I don't tend to do that a whole lot. So I don't have one like on hand. <laughs> I think that that works. I think that works well. I love your answer. <laughs> That's how I often feel with that question. <laughs> there's anything wrong with it i think lots you know life is embarrassing i made a really embarrassing choice recently um you know embarrassing in that i trusted people i shouldn't have trusted and to me that's embarrassing that's embarrassing that i was naive enough to think that people really had the best intentions in mind <laughs> that's just not always true it's just not it's kind of embarrassing that i'm that naive really at 48 but it's true. It's reality. I hear that. <laughs> I hear that. That's actually, that's very beautiful. And thank you for sharing that because I think a lot of people are in that same boat. Yeah. And thank you, Laura, for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in on this exploration of nature and human nature with the lovely Laura Fallon. Thank you for having me. For our listeners, thanks for joining us and remember, and for Laura, and remember that inspiration truly is everywhere, in case you forgot. But I don't <laughs> and uh, take a moment at some point today, stop whatever it is you're doing, take a deep conscious breath, look around, and be inspired.